Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Vanessa Perotta flies drones to sample whale snot. But first up, here's news of bacteria with electron breath. Zappy bacteria. Bacteria from humans can breathe in or out electric current. Previously, only bacteria from the bottom of the sea or the bottom of lakes or inside rocks with metal content were known to be electrogenic, that is, to generate electricity. Researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, have discovered that human gut bacteria, yogurt bacteria, and even some pathogens that infect people use extracellular electron transfer when they're outside the human body. That is, they send electrons to metal. We used to think we needed exotic environments to make bacteria generate electricity, but now we can do it easily with existing technology. We breathe to bring oxygen from the air into our bodies. The chemistry of converting food into energy provides extra electrons which need to be eliminated for the reaction to work. We use the oxygen we breathe in to take the electrons from digesting and metabolising food in a process called oxidation. Bacteria that live in an environment with little to no oxygen still need to get rid of the extra electrons from turning food into energy. Not being able to use oxygen is a problem. Some types of bacteria solve this problem by giving the extra electrons from the chemistry of digestion to metal in their environment, in the form of a flow of electricity. That is, they generate an electric current. Stick a metal electrode in a flask of these bacteria, and when the oxygen is low, you should measure a tiny current. The researchers identified eight genes in a type of bacteria that's carried in food and causes diarrhoea. These eight genes allow the bacteria to transfer electrons to iron or an electrode. This ability allows the bacteria to grow onto carbon surfaces that the bacteria can't ferment. Bacteria that generate electricity could be used to make a living battery for remote locations like the International Space Station. Perhaps we could change the behaviour of bacteria in the body or on surfaces that we don't want contaminated by manipulating the conductivity of the surfaces. The paper was published in the journal Nature and was titled A Flavin-Based Extracellular Electron Transfer Mechanism in Diverse Gram-Positive Bacteria. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. 
send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Vanessa Perotta has just completed her PhD at the Marine Predator Research Group at Macquarie University. She uses drones to sample the microorganisms that whales exhale when they surface to breathe. I began by asking her, what is her fascination with whales? Whales are very big. They're one of the world's largest animals. In fact, the blue whale is the world's largest animal. They live underwater. We don't often see them. And sometimes when we do see them, we're only getting a slight little glimpse of what is an animal that can be over 30 metres long and weighing in at over 80,000 kilograms. So they're a fascinating animal. They are huge. Does that make them dangerous to study? It can be. If you're very close to a mammal that can be up to 80,000 kilograms, you can maybe be in the wrong position at times and say if an animal wants to slightly move a part of their body, that might be a little bit dangerous for you as a human. So that's why my research, which uses drones, which we'll be discussing, is one way that we can try and learn more about these animals in a non-invasive way and also a much safer method. What is it about whales that you're studying now? At the moment, I'm looking at the health of whales via the use of emerging technologies such as drones. Drones are a tool that scientists are now taking on board to give lift or give rise, so to speak, to new research opportunities. In the past, scientists have conducted research which may involve getting really close to large whales in which case collecting whale snot or whale blow, which is that visible plume of spray rising from a whale's blowhole, which scientists will drive up to a whale in a boat and they'll use a big pole with a collection device at the end of this and then hold it over a whale's blowhole and wait for them to breathe. And the idea is that they're trying to collect the biological information coming from their lungs to learn more about their health. But that can be quite dangerous because you have to get really close to an animal which, as I said before, is really heavy, really long, and the whales might not like it as well. So if we can use new emerging tools such as drones to do that, that's a great alternative to getting very close to whales. And if you're getting in a boat next to where a whale is surfacing and then going down, that sounds like you could be drawn down with it. (laughs) Not exactly. Well, if you're in the water, that might be a different case, but generally if you're in the boat, Whales are very, very aware of their environment, so they're very aware where the boat is and also typically when they come to the surface, unless they're not interested in you, they'll simply just swim away. But sometimes whales can be very interested in humans and boats. And there's a great phenomenon called a whale mugging, which is the best kind of mugging you'll ever get because there's no loss of money. And what happens is, is the whales will come around the boat and they're so interested. They just want to see what's, what the boat is, what it looks like, what's that thing looking at them, which predominantly would be humans, and they'll swim around for maybe hours at a time in, interested in a boat and then maybe swim off. So what sort of things can you find out about a whale's health? Well, using whale snot, which is, as I said before, that visible plume that you see when a whale breathes, it contains information such as DNA, hormones, bacteria, lipids, proteins. It, it has a whole host of information from the body. But specifically, what I'm looking at is microbiology, so small bacterial microbes, which are, if you touch your hands right now, you touch your face, they're everywhere. And bacteria is good for us in, obviously, the certain amount of dosages and also the certain types of bacteria. 
So what we wanted to do was we wanted to learn more about whale health via the collection of bacteria. And in the past, health information from whales came from those that had either stranded, in which case their health was compromised, and also those that were deliberately killed, which is simply unethical. So by using drones and by collecting whale snot via this method, we can non-invasively sample whales from what we would consider the relatively healthy, free-swimming wild whales, and then collect a sample and bring it back to the laboratory and work out what kind of bacteria is living in their lungs. And then we can collect that over time, compare that to whales over years, and then even compare that to other whale populations around the world. And how quick does the collection have to be? Oh my gosh, the collection is truly a work of art, so to speak. We've developed these drones which are custom built, they're waterproof, and they have a thing called a Petri dish on top of it, which for your listeners, it's just like this round plastic device that can fit in the palm of your hands. And it also has a lid. And the idea being that you wanna have this Petri dish shut what before you sample the whale blow. So it's located on the drone, and the drone has a little device, which is something called a servo, which holds the Petri dish in place then once we see a whale in the distance, this is working off a boat off Sydney, we launch the drone into the air with a fresh clean petri dish, and then the drone is flown all the way out to a whale. Now I must admit, I'm not the drone pilot here. I need drone experts, and one of my experts is a gentleman called Alastair Smith from Heligai Scientific, and he flies the drone. And the reason we need an expert is because this is using a drone that I said before was custom built. So it has no GPS in it. It's purely manually operated. It's kind of like it, it is a racing drone as well. Then what we do is we fly it over to the whale with the Petri dish shut. And just as the whale's about to take a breath, the pilot can see the whale through the drone's camera. As the whale comes up, because sometimes your listeners might not know this, but sometimes there's a whale just about to come up to the surface, it'll start blowing air out. So it almost starts exhaling just before it reaches the surface. And once it does that, the Petri dish on the drone, there's a switch that we press, we open the Petri dish, then as the whale comes up, takes a breath, like a which is the noise of a whale blow. The drone is flying through the densest part of the whale snot with hopefully all that whale breath or the, the booger going onto the Petri dish and then after that happens, within, which is around six seconds, the dish shuts and the drone is flown back to the research vessel where I'll then take the Petri dish that it's closed because we don't want to collect sample from the air, we simply just want to collect whale blow and then we'll take that back to the laboratory and then process the sample. And what steps do you take to make sure it's not contaminated with things from the sea? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Well, the first step is having that petri dish shut for times when we're not sampling. So only open for when the whale is breathing. Another way is making sure that when we handle the petri dishes, we use gloves. And at times, sometimes the dish opens, we simply will have to chuck that dish into the bin and we won't be able to use that. There has been times where the drone has fallen in the water simply because maybe the drone had some sort of technical issue, which is very rare, thankfully. Uh, and that means that the water would seep through the Petri dish, which is not good. So we wanted to then discard that Petri dish. So they're all the kind of steps that we take to minimise contamination. And then obviously, once we collect the sample, that dish is only open back in the laboratory in something known as a biohood which is for your listeners like this plastic box, which is a very gourmet plastic box <laughs> with a, a, a fan which prevents any air or bacteria entering into your sample. So it sounds like it's a, it's a 
big long trip out there and it's a huge amount of skill and then six seconds of flight and then back. <laughs> well, the, the, the flight time's a little bit longer, but the six seconds is the duration in which the dish is open. That was an average amount of time. So sometimes I must add, this is a great point, the drone can be up in the air ready to sample a whale and the whales will simply not turn up and just stay, remain underwater. But that, that doesn't happen often, but sometimes that does happen. And how many whales do you get samples from per trip? Well, we, with greater effort, at the start, we only got one sample from one whale, and that was that was the, the starting point. But when we went out uh, recently, we were able to get within over 20 samples in a day or so, and from that, we were able to create a, a great amount of sample size. So we had around 59 individuals that we sampled. We were able to identify different individuals based upon their unique scars and colour patterns because, believe it or not, the whales that we're targeting, they're humpback whales, and although they may look the same, each of them have unique identification markers, whether they've got a scar or a different kind of pattern. Even their tails or their flukes, like our fingerprints, they all have a unique pattern which we can help identify individuals. About how long do humpback whales live on average? That's a good question. They can live over 50 years of age. Uh, there are whales, some whales in the world that are known to live a lot longer than that. So it is a case, for example, in the Arctic, top of the world, it's very cold. There is a whale called the bowhead whale and they hold one of the world's records for the longest lived mammal. And I think there was a case where an individual was at least over 100, 150 years old. So these humpback whales we know at least are 50 years old or more. Some of them might be a little bit older than that. So they've had time to accumulate scars and look different. Yes, yes even when they're young. Humpback whales, this is the thing that we sometimes might forget, they're very curious and inquisitive animals. They will rub up on things, rub up on the ground, each other. Sometimes when the males are trying to pursue females, they'll do something known as a heat run, where there's a lot of individuals and they're, they're rough and tumbling, they're sometimes drawing blood because there's so much whales rubbing on each other, crashing into each other, trying to assert dominance. And yeah, these animals, believe it or not, their skin is very, comes off quite easily. And it is replenishing a lot of the time, just like we exfoliate, whales do something similar as well. And so how healthy are the whales? Well, that's another good question. We know from the whales that we've sampled that at least the, the, the preliminary information that we've collected is what we refer to as baseline information. So these animals are showing a certain amount of bacteria, which is representative of obviously this population, but is also found to be similar to other whale populations around the world. So in short, I can't tell you if they're very healthy or not very healthy, but we would consider the whales that we did sample relatively healthy because when we sampled them, they were migrating off Sydney on their northward migration in the winter months, which is the typical time which they migrate. And also they looked in physically good condition. They had good body condition. They just fed in Antarctica, which was the main reason they go down there to feed. And then they're migrating north. So over time, that question of, are they really healthy, will be able to be a little bit easier, answered a little bit better, rather, with more information. But this is purely baseline information to learn more about, well, what is living in whale lungs? And how far up do you have to go out to sea to observe the whales? Well, fortunately, when it is migration time off Sydney, the east coast is a great place to spot whales because there's something known as the humpback whale highway, which is what we as humans call this migratory corridor off the east coast, which spans between three to maybe 10 kilometres offshore. And you really don't have to go far at all. So, for example, we're doing all our research off Sydney. We could 
head out of Sydney Heads where you have North Head on our left and South Head on your right and you could simply see a whale right there. Sometimes you'd have to go a lot further out. I also work on a whale watching boat and there are days where we've had to go really far offshore to see whales and then there are days where you simply turn around the corner and there's whales galore. And how do the whales respond to the drones? Oh my gosh, this is a really good, this is positive. The whales that we found did one of two things. In the study, because this is published in scientific literature, we found that the whales either knew the drones were there and did absolutely nothing, or they had absolutely no idea the drones were there at all. We found no behavioural response to our drones, which is a real positive and another advantage for working with drones. It's not what I would have expected because they're so sensitive to sound. Yeah, that's a good point as well. There are a few things. With drones, The there are... F- a couple of papers that have come out which have measured the acoustics of drones and it is likely for the drone we were using that the whales would have been able to hear them based on their frequency or their hearing abilities which we assume is somewhere within ours because we can hear whales and we can hear their songs but typically the ocean is a loud place and we forget this as humans if you've ever gone to the beach put your head under the water and listen you've got the sound from the waves you've got the sand you've got snapping shrimp with those like crinkly little someone's got a um you know those popping things to popping plastic to secure a package it sounds like that you've got ships so the ocean is very noisy and it might be a case that the whales heard the drone and just simply did nothing or they may not have heard it at all just because the drone was flown about at least over a metre above the surface. So the amount of noise penetrating the, the, the surface, the ocean surface, was simply unknown in our study at least. And this is a racing drone, so would you know roughly how fast do you normally have it going? <laughs> it was very fast. I think this drone, and, and I'm not 100% at this, but at least this drone goes at least over 50 kilometres an hour. There is talks that I was speaking to my pilot. I don't know if he said 80 kilometres an hour at one stage, but they don't, for sampling purposes, the drone does not need to go that fast. And everything's controlled. And if we don't feel comfortable with whale sampling, then we will simply abort the mission and come back. But the, the beauty is when the drone is up in the air not sampling, you've got this fantastic vision. It's like you're having a bird's eye view. You literally are. And it's a really great, it's to watch the vision back is so relaxing. And it's another, it's just a great positive spin on sometimes days where you've got a lot of hard research and it's a lot demanding. And then you can come back the next day and you can look at your footage. You can go, wow, this is so fantastic. And I'm so lucky to be looking at this for my research. And uh, any of those videos online? (laughs) There are components of those videos online. So I have a new website as well, which is vanessaparotta.com. And also, if you Google my name or Whale Snot Sydney, there are a few articles that will come up and there will be vision on there. But it's generally the couple of seconds of where the drone goes in, sees the whale, captures the whale snot, and then the petri dish shuts and then it goes. Is this the first project using drones for looking at whale microbiota? This is one of many that has begun. The first project that looked at this, or one of them, were using remote-controlled helicopters. So remember back in the day there was people using, you know, ethanol little motor cars and remotely-operated helicopters. A team were doing this and they did it with blue whales, that Rick can recall in one of the papers I've read. And it was a great idea. And so since then, that was published in 2010. 
research and the use of drones has just expanded and so people ha around the world are doing similar things but the use of our drone and also the flip lid is unique to our project and that's a first for the southern hemisphere so it's very exciting research it is exciting i mean it's one of those things where it'd be amazing not only to see the footage from the drone yes but the footage from the boat of the drone going in <laughs> would be amazing to see. Oh yeah, I've got some fantastic photos of the drone doing just that. Yes. And it's a it's great. It's it's very picturesque. It looks fantastic. You've got the beautiful especially when you get the horizon and the humpback whales. You can see the nostrils and then mo mostly the iconic hump or the dorsal fin at the the back of the whale and the drone in the air. It's action packed and it requires a high shutter speed. <laughs> very fast action all happening at once. Would you be able to use drones to watch any of the whales' behaviour? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, in fact, that's probably easier than what we're doing. By simply flying a drone and looking at whale behaviour, that is 100% easier. In fact, I was just over in Madagascar helping out a French team do just that. We were collecting whale snot samples over there, but a lot of the other colleagues were using drones to look at whale behaviour. And that's just simply, you launch the drone in the air and you just observe, especially when you're looking at a mother and a calf in the air, or at least the whales are in the water, but your drone's in the air. And it's beautiful. You can see these interactions going on that you would not necessarily see from the boat. And what about underwater drones? Oh, underwater drones. That's a new kind of platform that people are going into. And this is really infant because the technology is advancing. And I haven't actually done any of research myself using underwater drones, but I'd like to do that in the future. But that does come with a whole using newer technology and assessing what whales are going to do if there's a drone in the water. What, how will they react? These are the kind of questions we need to start asking and also would that be would we use underwater drones purely to look at behavior or are there other key questions that one can ask rather than just having a drone in the water with whale so what's the next step will you be continuing to monitor the health or is there a next stage to your research well i'd like to so i've just finished my phd which is a major component obviously of this research which is purely conservation based and obviously the use of emerging technologies is just one component for conservation that I looked at. But I'd like to continue looking at whale health. Obviously collecting information over consecutive years will help build up that picture a lot better. But other than that, more research is always a good thing and it's always a passion of mine to pursue this kind of career. So hopefully something comes up in the future sometime soon. And you were a participant and runner-up in FameLab. Yes, FameLab is a fantastic science communication competition that literally took me around the world. It was fantastic and I got to speak about whale snot in three minutes. So to give your listeners a bit of an, a background of FameLab, FameLab in Australia and is an in internationally recognised science communication competition. And in Australia there were participants from all around the, the country and there was different semi-finals and then a national final that occurred and fortunately I was... I, ran, I was winner's choice in New South Wales and then I ended up winning the entire competition in Australia. Very fortunate to have done so. And I was sent to England to a place called Cheltenham where they have the Cheltenham Science Festival. And as a result of that, I was representing Australia and there was countries from, there was 27 countries being represented. It was a fantastic experience. There was, I learned so much and I met wonderful people and there was a semi-final and then also a final. And thankfully I made it through to the final. 
and I was able to really proudly represent Australia and came international runner-up. Unfortunately, Malaysia was just so much better. She was just fantastic and she did a really great job. And so Malaysia came first and then Australia was runner-up. And you've been quite active in the media. It's a second part of your career now. Yes, well, science communication is really important for scientists. I learned just how important it was just through my PhD. And science communication is something that we're often not taught. And now it's becoming such an important part of scientists to go, oh my gosh, people have invested a lot of money into my research. And by publishing papers, that's a wonderful output, but you've got to do more. You've really got to tell people what your science is about, but in an informative and really accessible manner. And it doesn't mean dumbing down science, it just means presenting your information in a really low-key, accessible way. Whale health and research is a key component now of many scientists' toolbox using drones to do just that. And yeah, the next step is simply an opportunistic one, but I'd like to pursue science communication a lot more. Well, Vanessa Perotta, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was PhD candidate Vanessa Perotta from the Marine Predator Research Group at Macquarie University, talking about studying whales with drones. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email with a question I can answer on the show. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons in supporting the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound and fact-checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia, to 26 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and 7LTN City Park Radio, in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule 
to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.